0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld and by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz.
1: And this, I guess, is part four of, uh, of a series that began a few weeks ago when I gave a, a sermon, uh, I think it was Parshad Vayera, maybe, um and that was inspired by ideas that I had last year after these Parashot had already passed us by uh, going through the, um, the Hulu production of The Handmaid's Tale for the first time and really forcing me to think differently and painfully differently about some of the narratives of our ancestors and in terms of how the women of that society were treated even and especially in the name of something rather noble, which is to build the next generation of the Israelites, of the Jews. And so I gave a sermon, Rabbi Schatz gave two classes on on Zoom, on Zoom over the last few weeks, and this is a, um, a, a coda to that conversation. doesn't mean it's the last time we could talk about it, but it's uh, a way of bringing it all together. So Rabbi Schatz is going to kind of review kind of where we've been, particularly because some of you may not have been to any or all of those sessions. We're going to do some tech study on this week's Parsha, and then see where it lands for all of you.
0: So we began the Parsha that that uh, Rabbi Klickfeld gave his sermon about was the Parsha where we meet Hagar. And so we began the first class talking about how Hagar was... ...compared to the ways in which we think about the handmaids of this dystopian society and this production, um, whether you've read the book or you've seen the show or you've done both, you will, you will recognize some of the, the connections that we are making... So Hagar is this person who gets brought into the home of Abraham and Sarah and is really there to be able to help them have a child. Sarah is barren. Hagar gets brought in to have a child for Abraham. And it's interesting, one of the things that we spoke a lot about were the, these two different words that are used. In English, the one word is handmade, And in Hebrew, there are actually two different words that are being used to describe this general character of a handmaid. One is shifcha, and one is amah. And amah, later on in the Torah, often gets translated as female slave, whereas. In these Breshit, in these Genesis verses, is being kind of used in the same way that shivcha is being used as handmaid. So in our class, we spoke about how Hagar begins as a shivcha, then when she is sent away from her home... After she has had Ishmael and Sarah is maybe jealous or hurt or just because she's going to be having another child of her own kind of done with Hagar, she sends her away and all of a sudden she comes back as an Amma. So that was a very interesting piece. And then we also spoke about Bilhah and Zilpah who are the handmaids to uh, Rachel and Leah and we spoke about their differences and how they were utilized as a handmaid according to this series or this novel, or if they were somehow different because of the way in which they were considered either a shifcha or an amma. So I'll just give you kind of the, the thesis to where we landed, and then I'll let Rabbi Klickfeld continue. This idea of shifcha seems to be a woman that comes into the home that, who is going to be used as uh, as a handmaid, as you would define handmaid, without kind of the sexual implications of that. Someone who comes into the home and is able to help the woman, help the woman of the household, and and then hopefully be someone who can provide provide a child if that's necessary, whereas an ama is specifically brought in and seen in the category of a woman who has brought a life into the world for another family. So that seems to be the closest connection to the way in which the novel describes a handmaid and the way in which the series is talking about handmaids of this dystopian society.
1: And when you read through the Parashot as a good student of the Torah, what happens to Bilha and Zilpah are just part of the natural story. Right? There was infertility in the family, and in the ancient world, as a matter, of course, infertility of the espoused wife. So how are we going to produce the next generation? Find someone who's fertile. And when you rethink that through the prism of the novel or the movie or the TV show, it begins to take on a bit of a horrific overtone. And maybe we shouldn't say a bit. A lot of a horrific overtone. And the question for we 21st century Jews who love the Torah, is what are we supposed to do with that, right? As I mentioned in the sermon a few weeks ago, it doesn't really make sense to graph or to force any previous era's literature to stand up to our contemporary mores because they could not have known how society was going to evolve. But it's also hard to figure out what our stance is with regarding sacred texts that have things in them that make us cringe, as we imagine what the characters were actually experiencing. We chose this as the last Shabbat to this, uh, this class basically because of what was convenient on the Beth Am calendar, without checking to see what the Parsha was, we have no Shivcha and no Amma in Parshat Vayishlach, but we have something else. And so, what we're going to do is a little bit of a text study on another scene that also has to do with how vulnerable and used and perhaps abused the women of that era were, as a way of trying to get a larger sense of, of gender issues in the, in the Bible uh, and evoke from us more of our thinking about how we approach them today. So we're talking about Dina. Dina is the one daughter of Jacob. She gets her whole, her whole chapter, uh, and if you're talking kind of colloquially in English What's the the name of this story, if people are referring to it? It's the what of Dina. The rape of Dina, okay? That's how it is, in the same way it's called the binding of Isaac, it's called the rape of Dina. That's the general uh, English phrase for what happened. And it may or may not be what happened, right? So let's pull back from how we've heard the story referred to, and let's look at the verses, almost as if we're looking at it from the first time. Okay, so you have it in front of you. 34th chapter of Breshit. Dina, the daughter of Leah. We could linger why it's significant that it's referred to as uh, the daughter of Leah here. Why, we know that, why we are reminded. Tetzay goes out. Which daughter is this? Asher yaldal Leaakov, that she had, that Leah had given birth to for Jacob. She went to visit, to see amongst the daughters, the women of the land. We don't really know what that means. Wh- whom was she visiting? Who are these bnota arets? Uh, is this a benign going out? Rashi, whom I didn't bring here, actually says something very unflattering about Dina, that she was a yatsanit. She was a going outer, as if that meant she was a, um, you know, a, a, an unscrupulous woman, right? A woman should not be going out. She should be staying in, uh, somewhat pre-blaming her for what's about to happen. But that's not the only read in it. It might just be that she went out. She left the town or the home to go see someone. Okay. Vayar ota Shechem, a man named Shechem saw her, who was Shechem ben Chamor hachivi, he was the son of Chamor the Chivite. Nesi aretz, a prince of the land. It's unclear if Shechem, the son, is being referred to as prince of the land or his father, but they're a, a family of renown. Vayikach really important Hebrew words, because the word Vayikach is from the root lakach, which means to take which could actually mean several things because lakach, to take, could mean abduct. It could mean take against will. Interestingly, later on in the Torah, it's used rather plainly and even honorifically to talk about what happens when a husband takes a woman as his wife. Ki ish isha. When a man takes uh, a woman as his wife, it's not necessarily abduction. It could be they got married. So we don't really know exactly what this word means. He took her. Vaishkavota, he lay with her, or he lay her, he bedded her, literally, it's a direct object. Vaishkavotah, that is the word that is often rendered as the rape, right? It's from the root ayin nun he or ayin nun yud. And what does that word mean? Lots of different things. It can mean oppress. It can mean demean. It's what the Egyptians did to us in Egypt. That wasn't fun, but it wasn't necessarily uh, forced uh, sexuality either, right? anunu that they oppressed us, they put harsh labors on us. One of the ways in which matzah is referred to in the Torah is lechem oni, the bread that is connected with this affliction, right? But it's also what we're supposed to do to ourselves in Yom Kippur, right? Inuat techem you're supposed to op- oppose a certain amount of sacred affliction upon your souls. So the verb in and of itself is not necessarily only used for something which is horrific, but it doesn't seem uh, particularly pleasant here, right? He took her, he lay with her, and did some kind of inui to her. The rabbis have lots of things to say about that verse. Let's finish the uh, the little quote, and then we'll go on to the the commentaries. The the story seems to change. When people think of the story, they think of verse 2. They do not linger on verse 3, and that's very interesting. Is verse 3 a whitewashing of verse 2? Or is verse 3 a natural ex- uh, extension of what happens after intimacy? <inaudible> his soul, his spirit, clung to her. Dvekut <inaudible> was close. Bat Yaakov, the daughter of Yaakov. He loved her. What does that mean? Does it mean that he acted lovingly to her? He was infatuated with her? Is he feeling remorse for what he had done? Or is it he actually began to love this woman? And, does, and, and and what what voice, if anything, did Dina have in this? He spoke on the heart of the maiden. We don't know what that means. What does it mean to speak upon someone's heart? We imagine that means something nice. If you're going to speak upon someone's heart, it seems to be a tenderness. Notice, by the way, that the word na'ara here, Nun, ayin, resh hey. There's no hay. Oftentimes, or commonplace because it's a feminine word, the hay would be at, uh, at the end of the word. It's not there. Some people believe that when a he is missing from a word where it ought to be, it's a hint that there is some absence of important godliness or divinity in that scene because hay refers to Hashem, God. So as if we're supposed to read into this, that whatever's happening, there's not enough divine goodness. Okay. Pause here. You're reading these verses as if for the first time. What's your sense of the story? What happened to Dina? And what do we think of Shechem? And I'll repeat in the microphone for people who are on uh, Zoom. As if you're reading for the first time, no preconceived notions. What happened to Dina and what do you think of Shechem? Gary. So what Gary's saying is she was clearly taken, seemingly against her will, abducted in some way. But there also does seem to be some relationship. We don't have a, a sense of her sense of the relationship. And, and almost as if had you reversed—I'm now reading into what you're saying—reverses uh, verse 3 and 2, that his soul was drawn to her, and he loved her, and he spoke on her heart, then the next verse, and he took her and he lay with her, would, would almost make sense except for that Vayaneha and that he oppressed her. But it complicates it. Yes. Good. So the question is, is what we're observing, which is hard for us stomach, unusual, or simply how it happened, right? In our culture— First you fall in love, there's, there, there's a feeling, there's an emotion, there's a tenderness, and then there's a consummation in a relationship. Is it just that the way it happened back then is that there was the, uh, the, the, the intimacy, whether forced or not, and then an experience of whether or not this is going to last longer? We don't know. Tyson, and then Bobby, and then Barry. Aha. Uh-huh. Right, so um, what Tyson is saying is whatever feelings he had in verse 3... Uh, what happened in verse 2, we would call it in our culture, right, date rape, um, meet someone, uh, take by force. You might wake up the next morning and say, hey, I really, I, I really like her. That, that does not exonerate your um, unforgivable behavior from the previous night. Barry, Barry Bobby, Robert, <laughs> Jim. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Great. So, but Bobby is basically saying is a call for pshat, right? That that w- we can jump into an endless, you know, you know, dreamlike scape, which is what the rabbis do, as to try to figure out why it happened and what it should mean. But all we have are these verses, and these verses say plainly what happened, and anything beyond that is is um, is fantasy. And we're going to get into some of those fantasies in a second. Barry, and, and then we'll uh, look at some commentaries. Okay. So we, we, yeah, the the verb form is that. He clings to her it 's interesting to imagine what she might have felt in response and what her experience was as her brothers seek a tremendous revenge against this population the next we 're not going to focus on that. Is she angry at them for undoing what might have been a long term marriage or is she 's thanking them for the uh, taking vengeance okay jason great so so if we 're reading each verse and each word mattering, there has to be a reason like. There's what, ha- there's what happened in the scene, and then there's the meta-question as to why it's being presented in this particular way, right? So you could say, you could ask it one way or another, why did God give us these words? Or why did the, uh, the coming together of these texts, be pre- uh, why were they presented in this specific way that includes a very harsh and clear verb? So it seems to suggest that it's not the way it always happened, because if it was the way it always happened, it wouldn't have uh, invited such a word as vayaneha. Justin? Beautiful, right? So what Justin is saying is that if the hay at the end of Na'ara is representing a spiritual or divine absence, it's that whatever what happened to her deprived her of the ability to be connected in this relationship in a way that was spiritually whole and fulfilling. She was deprived of that. Sue? Right. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Mm-hmm. So Sue is saying that even if the verb lakach sometimes means to take as a wife, it doesn't say wife here, and we want to know how old you she was, I want to tell you all that you don't want to know the sources that try to get into the internal math of the Torah, that try to figure out how old she wasn't. That'll be for a different class. Uh, Hannah. And then, good. So, So what... Good. So, whatever we try to understand in terms of his motivation, she doesn 't speak she doesn 't respond, she has no voice throughout the entire entire process, making her very zilpa like very bilha like very uh, hagar like in that she is an instrument nancy right we can 't know what happened, and again, the question is not only what happened to her, but what is it that the texts presented to us in a sacred collection of texts are are supposed to be uh, moving us towards, right? So it's, it's Dina the character, but there's also the text itself has a voice, and what is the voice of the text trying to communicate to us? Rona? Aha. Uh-huh. Meaning, is what was wrong, not that she was taken, but that she, the daughter of someone significant, was taken? So there are commentaries that I did not bring that go in that exact direction, that the re- repetition of her being, Batyakov, 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 saying, what, what what's untoward here is that you... You, you you lusted and took after someone who, who who generally would not be treated that way in society. Unlike other women who could who were who are considered more chattel. I okay. just want
0: to can I just add something really quickly to that yeah. comment? Um, the, just Rona to your comment really quickly. The, the Bilha, Zilpa and Hagar, none of them were the word Tikach is used if, is used to to describe what happens to them in terms of when they are given over to the. The man of the household, or if we're trying to compare this to the handmaid still, the commander of the household, but but they are never um, taken by by force in the same kind of way as Dina is here. They, in terms of their role in the household, they know this doesn't make it okay, but they know that that's their role, right? So it seems as though in this story. That was not Dina's role, and so she's being taken, especially the fact that it says that she went out, right? She's not in a home. She's not actually being brought into a home, which is how it is for the other three women where they're brought into a home, and then they have this particular role. In this case, actually, she's leaving her home, and then all of this happens. So I just want to point that out in terms of the comparison between Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Let's go through some of the commentaries quickly so that we can get to our our kind of Meta analysis in terms of what we're supposed to do with all this material. I wanted to bring to you some of what the rabbis say on the second verse and how they drive home how painful and inexcusable this was. And then what they say on the third verse. Which seems to lean into some kind of softening of the situation. Okay, Ramban, Nachmanides, 13th century Spain, by Ishkabota, by Why do we have this extra word? What is the significance of the, of the oppression? This is coming to tell us that she was forced, or literally could mean raped. The, the root alif nun samech can mean something against your will. It could also mean the very specific thing against your will, which is rape. Don't read into this that she wanted this. Right? This, in some ways, Nancy, is the Ramban evoking Dina's voice, and his voice was, I was not interested in this. Don't read this reader to suggest that she was agreeing to this um, relationship or this contact. Um, she was not uh, interested in the prince of the land. We, the Torah tells us this, this to praise her, that she actually, it's a weird thing to say, that we praise her by trying to imagine her resisting. It actually makes it more awful to imagine. But again, the Torah is trying to um, present her possibly as someone who uh, was not willing to be, Uh, forced into this relationship. Look at HaMek Davar, late 19th, early 20th century uh, commentary written by the Netziv. Vayikachotah. This is responding to something what you said, Sue, a little bit. Lest you think that the Vayikachotah here means that he took her as a wife. He he took her, Levetot, to his house, V'chadaro, to his room. It was very clear what kind of taking this was. This was not, let's go plan a chuppah. This was you with me now whether or not you want to. Malbim. Um, at 19th century Ukraine, uh, breaks it down even one phrase before. Vayar ota, he saw her. Balto imo, lest you think that she willingly went with him, bedivrei agavim, that she kind of flirted with him. By the word, that, that root agav, ayin, uh, gimbal bet, is, believe it or not, the source root of the word in modern Hebrew for what fruit? Agvania, tomato. A tomato was called a tomato because the because uh, Ben Yehuda, in this is a little interesting digression, in late 19th, early 20th century, decided that there was something, you know, ripe and red about a tomato, and so he created the noun tomato out of the root that means uh, wooing um, and flirting.
0: That's going to be the clip for the YouTube.
1: Yes. Um, So lest you think that she flirted with him. Ki ra'a he reads in, he saw her. The first time he saw her, he went further. That's why the Torah includes the fact that he saw her as if it was a one-time thing. He took her with a strong hand with force. There was no one to save her from his hand. It's a terrible image. After all, he was a person of repute, and therefore, who was going to get in the way? Very strong condemnation of... Um, of Shechem here, and we moderns are happy with a strong condemnation of him. A three part sin. He took it with a strong hand. It's robbery robbery of something um, um, that she owned. She owned herself. She should have owned herself and her body. He robbed her. He bedded her. And therefore, he. Um, he defiled her because he wasn't even supposed to be with her because he's uncircumcised lest you think that she wanted to be with him she was not willing he forced her and to her it was considered whatever sweet things he may have said afterwards in the moment he cons- she considered it to be an Inui okay. and there are many more like that but look what happens when some of the same and some different commentators start trying to make sense of verse 3 because verse 3 is hard and interesting and complex compared to verse 2. What do we do with Vayadaber Alev that he spoke on her heart? Ibn Ezra, who loves the Hebrew language and wants to make sure that every word is understood completely. Shediber la divrei rakim He said to her words of softness and comfort. Does this make it worse? in some ways, that he forced her and then tried to make her feel better about it after the fact? Or, in the ancient moray, is this about as good as it could have been that she was, as unfortunately many women were, pulled into a situation that she didn't want to? But at least the next day, we're understanding that this person is a person of softness. It's hard to know even to do what to do with that. Sforno, Italian commentator in the 15th century, show. His soul was clung to her. We have an example in the Bible of an abduction against a woman's will and then a despising of the next day of kind of sending her out as if she really had just been an object. That's the biblical story in the book of, um, book of Judges of uh, Amnon and Tamar. This is not that, right? Lest you think this was the worst of ancient society and their interaction between men and women, this started the way so many things did. By the next day, there was the budding of a love, right? There was maybe even, you know, a a, a Tevya and a Golda, right? That after time, no matter how it began, there was something that could have blossomed between them. Look at Hamekdavar. We saw him before. Um, Sorry, Book of Samuel is where the story is, not the Book of Judges. This is the native early 20th century, his soul clung. He wanted to live with her. He wanted to live with her a life of marriage. He wanted to take her in the, um, in the religious way that we understand marriage to take place. Because he saw something of substance in her, her wisdom. He loved her. oneg biofya. The love of the enjoyment of her beauty. And he spoke to her, dog so that she wouldn't be nervous, who would possibly marry her after she had been defiled, after all, he said, you're going to be with me not just this past night, but you're going to be with me forever, that's what I hope. I'm a person of significance, you're not going to be alone, you're not going to be thrown out as a defiled woman, you're going to be the wife of a significant person, that's not a terrible thing in that world. Radak be David Kimchi in Provence in the uh, Middle Ages, Vatidbak nafsho bedina bat Yaakov, Davkan nafshoba. his soul clung to her, Bavur yofya, because of her beauty, V'od shaita bat adam because she was the daughter of a person of significance, Jacob in this case, V'idaber alev he spoke on the heart of the maiden, Bavur she'ina, because he was, I'm interpolating, aware that he had done something the previous night that he shouldn't have, and oppressed her aliba. He spoke to her heart So that she not be angry I think she had a reason to be angry But because he wanted ultimately There to be a relationship that was going to last And finally the last one Because it's been a long time since we had German On a text sheet <laughs> at Temple Beth Um, Anybody want to read the German out loud? <laughs> This is Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who is the uh, founder, of really, of modern orthodoxy in Germany in the 19th century. He wrote his commentary in German, which, by the way, another little tangent, very significant, because most rabbis throughout history have written their Torah commentaries in Hebrew. He wrote it in the lingua franca of that era, um, which put him, um, in some ways, uh, 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 in in the vanguard of trying to speak the language that the people were speaking at the time, so that his congregants could understand not just the Torah scholars. So uh, in the absence of a of a person speaking German, we'll read the English. Uh, this this English comes to you by way of Google Translate. After he had originally stimulated by his senses, violently abused Jacob's daughter in sensual lust. Clear what he's saying there. The moral and natural charm of Jacob's daughter captivated him in such a way that he wanted a lasting relationship. What are we supposed to do with all of this, right? And what are we supposed to do, not only in terms of how we think about Dina, but how we think about the other woman in the stories of Brashit. We cannot rescue them from their era. We cannot transport Bilha into 2021. We cannot make Dina live amongst us. Dina lived amongst them. right? But the question is, how are we supposed to take um, text that is meant to be a source of uh, spiritual inspiration, is it honest or dishonest to soften what happened? If we soften it, then it's more easily uh, existing for us as sacred writ. But maybe... That's not what the text deserves. The text deserves for us to look at it exactly as it was. So I now throw this back out to you. Whether you were part of the three classes before or just coming to this material now, whether you've seen the show or you haven't, uh, you're all uh, modern people who hopefully have a fully evolved egalitarian sense of how uh, men and women should interact with each other in moments of uh, of intimacy um, with with uh, full uh, consent on both sides. But we also have these texts that are not going anywhere. We're going to meet Bilhah next year, and we're going to read Dina next year as well. And how do we fit that into our 21st century religious sensibility? Where are some of you holding with this? From me, is your hand up? Yes, Rabbi Susan Lemley. Mm-hmm. So I can't say that again as well as Rabbi Susan just said it, but <laughs> something like quoting Rachel Adler, uh, who who named these... Was it a difficult text? Was that... Challenging texts and that that requires of us uh, some kind of a, a, a double attitude, holding on to two things that are at odds with each other simultaneously, which according to, was it Einstein who said that's the very mark of a, of a, of a wise mind, right? That we, we, we preserve them as they were because otherwise we're boring a hole in the very spiritual ship that we are in. But, we also ha- but we're, we're doing an uh, honor on some level if we simultaneously preserve it and critique it through the lens of the ethos of today's age. And if we do just one without the other, we're sacrificing very, something very important about what it means to be a close and sacred reader of the text. Good. Yes, Kathy. Yeah. So Kathy said a lot that I I can't encapsulate. No, it's fine. No, it's wonderful. I just for the people who are listening on Zoom, that there are some very significant differences between the Bil Hazilpa Hagar uh, narrative, where where someone is being taken kind of from w- within that area, but to pr- propagate the, uh, the the family, whereas this seems to be um, somewhat a cautionary tale against the the modest women of the generation for what happens when you go out and you leave your clan. Um, and, and also perhaps a, a recognition that there was something enticing or, or, or exciting to Shechem that he met, he met someone not from, not from his, own, um, his own population. Rabbi Mordechai Finley of Or HaTorah likes to say that when we come across challenging texts, it's easy and tempting to tisk-tisk it. It's a version of what Rachel Adler would say. But he said, if we're really honest, we have to remind ourselves that the the basic human urges and conditions that these texts are referring to are still present today. We've just got different um, communal and societal responses to them, right? So surrogacy, right? We still live in an era where a married couple can face a future without a biological line and our way of doing it, because of evolved ethics and science, is this way. And their way of doing it was that way. And it's very hard to us to, us to, to read through those verses. But they're actually responding to the same human challenge, the same human lacuna, right? Even when it comes to the... I, heard, I won't do this justice, but a really interesting um, modern and traditional read of the Sota story, which is a very hard set of verses to read in Parshat Nassau with a woman who's suspected of adultery um, and the ordeal she has to go through. And it's so easy for us to look at that with, you know, evolved eyes and say, well, you know, what, what, a, what, what a, a base society that was that would force a woman to go through that. What he asks us to consider is the, the notion of suspecting that the one that you are committed to, right, in either gender direction is not being faithful to you Is still a tremendous human uh, uh, challenge and a tremendous emotional. A place to put yourself in, and we don't yet have the perfect ways to handle that in our society. Neither today. That's the way they went up. Uh, they went about it, and that's what they understood was was God's um, God's command. So some of the issues that the that we're dealing with in the biblical text, we're still dealing with today. Of course, we're dealing with them after thousands of years of moral and human evolution development. Perhaps one more comment before we bring it together, Rona? Yeah. Good. So what Rona's asking, are there, are, there, are there almosts? There are three almosts. When you follow the narrative of uh, Abraham and Isaac, there are three times where they enter either Egypt or Gerar. And as a way of preserving the well-being of the family in a foreign place, the wives are temporarily offered up as, uh, as almost mates for the local king, and then there's divine intervention, and they are spared from that um, that indignity so yes the it 's not just the 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 named and unnamed handmaidens that are part of an ancient society where a woman 's body and her sexuality were um, props in a large political game being played by men, but even Sarah and even Rebecca are close to that place and then get spared because of divine goodness. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, which depends on what the vis is. The, the Dina is a, is in between. J- Joseph has been uh, sold, but he's not yet, uh, we're not yet seeing the second half of the story. Sorry, it's pre-Joseph. I'm, I'm, we're in Vayishlach, not vayishlach. It's pre- pre-Joseph. Right. Right. So what Rona's saying is that Given the fact that there were other moments in the, in the Genesis narrative where God finds a way to intervene, lest one of the women in our family gets mistreated, that, uh, that what the brothers took, um, took it upon themselves to revenge. In fact, the Torah's internal memory of this story, and you're right, the story is primarily about the men and not the women. Who are the villains in the Torah's internal memory of this story? Not Shem, and not Dina for going out, but Shimon and Levi who take such bloody revenge against Shem and his people, such that at their father's deathbed, their father remembers that they are men of weaponry and of and, and of bloodletting and of um, villainy and of evil, right? So the, the Torah kind of glosses over what happened to Dina and focuses more on how the brothers avenged her indignity, but in a way that the Torah cannot sanction. Um, there's there's no way to to wrap all of this up. Uh, what we wanted to do was to open up this wound a little bit, so that we can continue to be honest readers of our sacred inherited text, um, and for us to read Dina and read Bilha and read Zilpa and read Hagar with a little more emotional kindness, um, and uh, and and maybe the most important thing is if if we're going to read these ancient biblical texts with a critical eye, we can't rescue these women, but there are women that need rescuing today. Right? There are sex slaves even today in, pro- in our country, probably in our city, maybe even in our neighborhood. Right? So even with our society having evolved to the place where it is, the urges and the systems that drove the Inui then are still plaguing us on levels that we don't want to think about. And perhaps the greatest harnessing of reading of ancient texts is to figure out in what way we are soldiers in the army of trying to cleanse our society from some of those very evils. So Bilhah, Zilpa, Hagar, and Dina, uh, we honor you and we thank you for being in our story, as it were. And we, um, we have heaviness for what the texts uh, forced you to endure, and we're still learning from you all these thousands of years later.
0: You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Om, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcast. For more information about Temple Beth Om, Los Angeles, go to tba tbala.org.